Hi, my name is Skipper Chong Warson, and I'm a design director in San Francisco. Thanks for listening to How This Works. This is a show where I invite people on to talk about a topic that they know a lot about. And today, I have Sarah Sudhoff with me. We're going to talk about how she works as an artist and her background as a photographer, arts administrator, and photo editor. Thanks for making the time to be here, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me, Skipper. Of course. So, Sarah, let's start with you. And specifically, let's start with pronouns. My pronouns are he and him. How would you like to be referred? Her and she. Awesome. So, Sarah, who are you? Will you tell us a few things? I am an artist, a visual artist, performer, super multitasker, extraordinaire, single mom. (laughs) Is the multitasker related to being a mom or a single mom or an artist? Where do you find the most leverage? I think it's both. Yeah. I mean, I have to multitask so much. Well, in any position I've ever held, like arts administration, photo editing, you're constantly multitasking. You have to be very strategic and be really good at logistics. Yeah. Uh, As a single parent, you have to be extraordinary at logistics. (laughs) Extraordinary. Yeah. (laughs) And manage minions very well. And... um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I've started giving my children to make their own lunches for school. That is a game changer. Let oh, me just yeah. tell you. <laughs> yeah. And is it to the point where they can fully make the lunch or like you have to go in and, and double check? Are you in double check mode still or? Uh, they're probably making lunch about once a week. So I'm okay. overseeing or I'm, I'm at least laying out the material or the options for them. And then they're choosing and, you know. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, as an artist... I'm constantly trying to figure out, you know, like this week I'll be updating the website and applying for grants and backing up the computer and organizing the computer and following up with calls and conversations. And, you know, so it's like wearing multiple hats that all come under the umbrella of artist. Right. So just what I heard you say right there, you talked about being a website designer. You talked about being a grant writer. You talked about being an IT administrator of some sort. Mm-hmm. So not just the nuts and bolts of creation, but then also all of the mechanics and the backstage stuff. Yeah, the back end or the the administration, which is so not the fun part. Right. But yeah, there's just, it, it's never ending. And of course, as an artist, I just want to make and play yeah. um, and show. But you have to do the maintenance part to make sure that you're doing justice to the work sure. and also trying to get the work seen or recognized or supported in other ways. You know, and I, I, you know, I won a grant a couple, I don't know, a month ago now, and I have mm-hmm. not started that work because I just came off this one project. Mm-hmm. I need to, like I said, update the website and do a little bit more with that. Sure. And then I can switch gears to the new project and start figuring out what that looks like and how that's going to roll out now that I've received half the funding And I don't receive the rest of the grant until the project is done and I have a year to do it. So another thing that I hear you saying is that all of this stuff is pretty low pressure, right? There's no pressure at all to make compelling work or to, you know, make the right thing or even make sure that your kids have lunches. Like this is all like super low pressure stuff. Oh, well, (laughs) I have no idea anymore. I mean, I just came off of, can you make a solo exhibition and including two performances in a month and a half, you Uh, know, which I just knocked out Um, the fastest I've ever made work in my entire life. Right. And 
everything now seems easy. That's fair. <laughs> so talking about stress, I was like, I, I don't know. I, I don't. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I'm always in a become... state of, state of yeah. stress. Yeah. Have you just become <clears throat> numb to it at this point? I don't think numb, just that you adapt. Yeah. yeah. You know, I couldn't operate like that all the time. I knew it yeah. was, you know, I knew a deadline was coming. I knew I needed to hit it. Um, I wasn't sure how much material I would have made. I was happy with how much I made in such a short yeah. period of time and the response yeah. that it's already gotten. But yeah, I could not operate at that level full time. I'd be burnt out in six months. So I, I want to get back to the work that you just premiered. So we'll circle back to that in a little bit. But I want to finish the last of our standard and sure questions. So Sarah, what's something that you feel comfortable sharing with us? Um, something that people might not guess about you? I would say most people don't know that I come from a military family. And both my grandfather and father were Navy pilots. My grandmother mm. was a WAVE. My uncles were in the Navy and my aunt was in the Air Force. And What's a WAVE? Uh, a WAVE was the first female um, recruits for the Navy. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. So okay. can I list her actual jobs? <laughs> no. Right. But um, they were called waves. So this would okay. have been in the 40s, 30s, 40s, 40s, I guess. 40s. Yeah. You know, I've lived all over the world. Uh, I was born in Hawaii, lived in the Philippines, lived in Florida, Pennsylvania, okay. and Texas. Okay. And my cousin was lucky enough to be born in Spain. I was born in America. Ah. I'd love to have dual citizenship. But, you know, moving all the time was very difficult as a child, but, sure. you know, prepared me for the life, you know, sort of primed me really well for the type of life I have. I'm constantly having to navigate, pivot. I'm almost mm. a chameleon when I need to be. So I can mm. blend into almost any situation pretty easily and adapt very quickly depending on the type of surroundings or environment that I'm put, put myself into. And maybe in some ways that's, you know, helped me or supported me in the types of art projects that I work on because I can go into kind of any situation and, you know, find my niche or find the people, the right people that I need to talk to. Yeah. You know, I've never lived any place long, at least growing up. Now I have, but growing right. up, it was like two to three years. I was constantly moving. I actually really like to move. I'm in mm. the process of moving. <laughs> you can see boxes behind me. Oh, um, I wondered. Okay. Yeah, there's boxes. But I really like to move and for some strange reason. But um, it allows me, I think, to like cleanse my house and, uh, <laughs> you know, really reset. only take. Yeah, 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 it's like a reset. I, I really yeah. enjoy doing that because I was sort of forced to do that um, as yeah. a child. Yeah. But because of the military and because of moving all the time, I have no like home. I have no childhood home. I've never mm. had a childhood home. So when mm. people talk about, oh, I grew up in this house or my childhood friends from elementary, I have no idea what they're talking about. I have no connection to that. Yeah. Is that a good or a bad thing? I don't know. My my children don't have a childhood home. They've moved so much as well because I grew up moving. Yeah. My children have also grown up moving, yeah. sometimes within the same city sure. versus you know from state to state or country to country. But yeah. I do have places that I am drawn to, Tennessee, which I my grandparents used to live live in, and I visited all the time, and then uh, Dustin, Florida. 
Mm. which I still go back to all the time. Those are sort of my pseudo homes that I feel feel an affinity towards because I don't have a childhood home or a childhood neighborhood or a child yeah. or even groups of friends from my childhood. I don't yeah. know where those people are because I was always, you know, leaving. But it was that experience of moving all the time and constantly relocating and having to assimilate into a new classroom or a new city so quickly mm -hmm. that led me to photography because mm. I asked my, I think it was I asked my dad for a camera because I yeah. wanted to record my environment. Okay. And by the time I got comfortable and settled into my environment, I was leaving and I had got no it. record of it. Uh, well, I mean, I had a record, but it was from my parents' perspective, not from mine. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I remember getting a camera in fifth grade so that I could document my life so that I could remember it. And yeah. I also remember about that same time that I shifted my personality. Mm. I was a very shy child and okay. I intentionally, I made a conscious decision not to be so shy so that I could make more friends or make them more quickly and develop those relationships because normally it would have taken me a year to feel comfortable and then I'd be gone in the, the yeah. next year or the following year. Yeah. And so I remember consciously in fifth grade, you know, asking for this camera and also telling myself that I needed to be, you know, more open and more personable and be more mm. of an extrovert instead of an introvert. It's not mm. to say that I don't find myself shy in certain situations until I get sure. comfortable but I'm probably more extroverted than introverted now than I was as a child. Yeah. It's an interesting adaptation. And I don't know if I'm going to leave this piece in, but we are re-recording our conversation. Like we recorded a few weeks ago before you were going to open your show. However, we had some technical difficulties unbeknownst to me until I listened back to the recording. So we're recording again and we're actually recording on a late Sunday night, your time, Texas. And What's interesting is that like the first time we talked, I didn't, I don't remember hearing any way about the getting a camera in fifth grade. The background that I remember from our previous conversation, and I think that this is in your website bio and some other things is around how you started studying astronomy mm -hmm. and then began. So start me in fifth grade when you first get that camera and then track forward to making that decision in college to major in astronomy and then how that ultimately manifested in you becoming a photographer. <laughs> it sounds so crazy. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that sounds really crazy. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, because my grandfather and father were these military pilots, mm -hmm. it felt expected that I would join the military. And okay. I didn't know if I wanted to join the military. If I did would I be a pilot or would I do some other role? But the other thing that I had grown up with was living in Florida. I lived not far from Cape Canaveral okay. and I was lucky enough to be able to watch shuttle launches from the neighborhood cul-de-sac. Nice. <laughs> and uh, granted they were in the distance, but I could still see them and it was beautiful. And I hope my children get to experience that someday. Although they've watched, you know, the Mars rover land on the television um, or actually on the computer, but not in person. So um, right. that was really influential and very special to me. And my I think my grandfather and my father 
you know, grew up with a love of space and that was instilled in me. And I remember in high school having space posters Mm. on the back of my bedroom door. I did not have, you know, music posters and like whatever was, you know, whoever, I don't even remember the band um, going on at that time, but I had space posters, right? I was that kid. I was the nerd, the jock and the nerd rolled into one somehow Uh, because I was, you know, playing soccer um, on two different teams and then, uh, um, okay. and then also, uh, yeah, the high school team and the club team. And then, and then this okay. like science nerd, but, um, you know, I was taking the biology classes and the physics and looking to pursue a degree in science, physics, specifically mm-hmm. astronomy track driven. I wanted to work for NASA. I'd mm. still, work, I'd still work for NASA if they want to call me. <laughs> a girlfriend of mine has been an artist in residence for them recently and uh nice. yeah i would maybe that's my end yeah. that i can still work for nasa nice but um yeah i wasn't sure what i wanted to do, do you get for a them. flight patch for that is there yeah a... i don't know i should ask her yeah but yeah she's been doing something on moon rocks erica blumenfeld nice and yeah i'm kind of jealous of her but anyway love you erica <laughs> and uh <laughs> you know, all through high school was like, okay, am I going to do military? Am I going to do astronomy, science, something NASA related? I apply for college, you know, I'm like top 10% of my class. I think I was like number seven, was able to get some scholarships as I'm half Cuban and was going to go to school for astronomy in the Northeast. uh, But unfortunately, a blue collar family couldn't afford faster even though I got a soccer scholarship to go study astronomy. But anyway, (laughs) ended up going to UT, which also has an amazing astronomy program. And uh, my first year at UT was on track to be an astronomy major. And somewhere along the line in that first year, I... As much as I enjoyed it, I wasn't sure that it would yield Mm. the position that I wanted. I didn't know... At 19, you know, if I'd gone to school in my 30s, I could have been like, oh, yeah, I can do this. I can work for NASA. But at 19, it seemed so daunting. And I don't know if I made the right decision. Maybe I made the right decision. But I started to consider, would I be good enough Mm. to work for NASA? Mm. And if I wasn't good enough, which was a high probability, um, because they only take so many people, where would I end up and would I be happy? Right, right. So these were all questions I was having at 19. Yeah. <laughs> so, those are big questions for a 19-year-old. Yeah, and just thinking about... Those you are know, big like, questions for a 20 and a 39-year-old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I've often thought about, you know, had I gone to school later, had I taken a year yeah. off or two years off and traveled the world, would I have made a different decision in the moment? And yeah. it's not that I regret the decision to switch gears, but I, I just, yeah, I, I think a lot of it was based on age. Um, And I was so young trying to make these really, really difficult decisions in a very difficult track and major at UT. Sure. And UT being the University of Texas at Austin. Yep. And so after my freshman year, I switched gears. And the only other thing that I had been interested in besides science and space was photography. Okay. And I had never taken a photography class. I Mm. did not do yearbook or newspaper or anything like that, like, most people had if they were interested in that career path. Yeah. And um, I happened to meet with the head of the communications department at, at UT and was welcomed with open arms, Rick Williams. He was fantastic oh, mentor to me and found, you know, 
found a home and found a voice and found that I could take all that curiosity and all that drive and that passion for mm-hmm. not only science, but for the world around me and funnel it through a camera. That's good. Thank you for walking us through that. And I think if it's still edited in that notion that you said was like, doesn't it sound crazy just on the, just a couple of steps. But I think when people start breaking down certain parts of their life and you hear the top level, here mm-hmm. are the three, four steps. But then when you start to hear what you, for instance, went through to make those decisions. And like you said, at 19, you may have made another decision, you know, if you follow, if you were able to go back and sort of like take another timeline, but I think it absolutely makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you graduated, did you graduate with a degree in astronomy or did you end up with a, a photography degree? Um, a photography degree, a bachelor of journalism with a concentration in photography. So then what happens next as a photographer? Well, at UT, I was lucky enough to work for the Daily Texan, Mm. and I did every job. Which is the school newspaper. The school newspaper, fantastic school newspaper, and did every job possible from obviously being a photographer to a photo editor to a layout designer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really enjoyed that experience, wouldn't trade that for anything. And then I um, was also interning for an old company called City Search while Mm. I was in my last year of undergrad. I can't recommend interning more to anybody. Um, It's such a great way to get your feet wet and to really know if you want to pursue that career or pursue that particular business, you know, whatever it might be. And um, I was offered a job uh, straight out of college to open um, City Search in Houston. So I ran the photo department in Houston at 21 (laughs) and at 22... I was offered to run the New York office cool, and was moved to New York um, by City Search and really was ecstatic about that opportunity. And yeah, it, it's what landed me in New York. And then I transitioned from City Search. There were some changes in the company and I wanted to be part of something that was more journalistically driven and um, hard news instead mm-hmm. of more editorial mm-hmm. at that point. And luckily, time the website had an opening and I applied and I think went through three interviews and um, Rick Stingle was the, the editor of the the website and then, then left time and then came back to run the magazine. So he was my former boss, but had a fantastic time working there and really loved it and learned so much about journalism and photography and stories and reporting. And yeah, it it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. I really, really enjoyed it. And, you know, that was 22 to 24. So you're working at Time Magazine in their digital department, as well as their print manifestation? So we had conversations um, and meetings with the print. And sometimes there was overlap. Sometimes I would reach out to a photographer that was doing something for the magazine, and we would share it online. And sometimes we had online only content. So it was kind of both. Um, Or sometimes I would just I was just picking up stories from the wire as well that would run also in the in the uh, magazine, but I was just picking them up from the wire. And occasionally, we would get to assign our own stories for the website, which was also really nice. So it was kind of a case by case, week by week, depending on what we would be doing. And then occasionally, I also shot for them, because I happened to be one of the photo editors that could shoot, or one of the people on staff for the website that was also a photographer. Got it. So yeah, I ended up being laid off um, when Time and AOL merged. Oh, when they merged. 
years ago, so long ago. And I ended up getting an amazing severance package and went backpacking through Europe for four months by myself, which was cool. also an amazing experience. Yeah. And then I came back to freelance for them. And then okay. I ended up working at Time, People, and Entertainment Weekly because I was already right. embedded in the system and I knew how all the back end worked. So I could work pre- you know, very easily at any of the publications that were under the Time Inc. label. And then you go and get your MFA, right? During that time, I, as much as I loved photo editing Mm -hmm. and meeting photographers, I really Mm -hmm. missed being a photographer because when I started working for City Search, yes, I was shooting, but I was more managing other photographers. I was a photo director. Got it. And then at time, I was a photo editor and occasionally shooting and really missed being in the field, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So I started assisting two editorial photographers in New York, um, one that was primarily studio-based and one that was location-based. And they both encouraged me to work on a project, my own project, that then I could shop around to other magazines. So I did this project called Sorority Rush, which I documented the Sorority Rush at the University of Texas for two years in a row. And I focused on the Delta Gamma Sorority. The project is on my website, but, um, because I'm not really doing editorial work anymore, but if people want to see it, I can share it, but it is still syndicated through Redux pictures in New York. And so it's run in magazines all over the world. And that's been fun. That's been, you know, interesting to see that project be both an editorial project, but also be featured in galleries as well. So it was like this first project that sort of had legs in both worlds. And then, after assisting for a couple of years, I realized that I wanted to go back to school and I just, okay. and I was already living in New York and had a plethora of options <laughs> to choose from. I just had to get in. Yeah. Simple. You know, photojournalism <laughs> photographer trying to apply to art school. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's just switch gears. And, um, I had contemplated getting a master's in photojournalism, but decided that, you know, I'd already worked at Time Magazine. I don't, I, sure. what, 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 what else could I do? <laughs> I mean, right. Like, where else can I go? Right. I mean, maybe, you know, the Washington post or the New York times or something like that. Um, yeah. which are, you know, all great options or the New Yorker. I would have been sure. happy in any of those places. Right. But, uh, I was interested in the other side of photography, the side of photography that I didn't know that was a fine art side. And what did it mean to be a fine art photographer? And what did it mean to exhibit in galleries? And I had known and met and worked with James Noctaway at Time Magazine, and he was a photojournalist that exhibited in galleries. And so there was a couple of photographers that were coming from the photojournalism world and and crossing over into the fine art world. And um, so I had some idea of what that world looked like, but it was still from a journalism perspective and through a journalistic lens. But what did it mean to have a conceptual eye and to create a project that maybe wasn't based in reality or loosely based in reality? And how how did that manifest? And what did that look like? And how was the message relayed without captions and a headline and, you know, all these things that I'd learned to do, you know, who, what, when, where, and why. It's totally embedded in me. Yeah. And, you know, not cropping an image, you know, all these things that, you know, are very rigid in photojournalism, which are there for a reason. Um, But what did it look like when you remove those structures or that, that uh, those parameters, what, what could photography be? 
And I was in the best city to sort of look at that and applied to all the schools and uh, was waitlisted at Parsons and uh, eventually got in, luckily. Cool. And um, I was at Parsons from 2004 to 2006. So that's an interesting, and I want to unpack that a little bit because some of our listeners might not really understand what the difference between an editorial photographer and um, someone who who has work that's displayed in galleries. Can you give me a little bit more of a distinction between what an editorial photographer does versus what a fine arts um, or more of a conceptual photographer does? Well, I'm going to confuse everybody now because I really think that there's at least three or four <laughs> options. Okay, okay. So like editorial could mean fashion. Yeah. So for okay. thinking like Annie Leibovitz, yep. staged fashion. Yep. Editorial can mean, as I mentioned, James Noctaway. Okay. So James could shoot something for Time or Newsweek. Okay. So that could also be editorial. Yep. Then the photographers I was working for were also considered editorial. Okay. <laughs> but they were staged. Ah. Uh, so journalism. Can is you not give me an example of what the like what kinds of work they did? So Andrew Hetherington uh, is an Irish okay. photographer who was based in New York, but is now based in Atlanta, and. Okay. We would do um, portraits of musicians. We would do portraits of people for Esquire, Men's Health, often someone of notoriety, an author, someone famous, you know, doing some sort of mainly portrait photography. I remember I got to go, oh, I can't remember the congressman's name, but I got to meet Richard Gere and Bono at the same party (laughs) with this photographer. And he was photographing... Bono and the congressman and okay. I was walking around holding the light as he's photographing. So in some ways they were staged, but these were real events or real people and he was documenting them. Yeah. But adding light and at, yeah. you know asking them to pose and things like this. Yeah. So that's a, you know that's also editorial. If okay. if he had gone to just document the party, yeah. and not asked anybody to pose, that would be more journalism. Journalistic. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. And then, so yeah, fashion can be editorial. What Andrew was doing, these, uh, you know, um, staged portraits could be editorial. And then Aaron Goodman, who's still based in New York, okay. he is a photographer and photo illustrator. So we were doing time covers and ESPN back pages. And okay. so a lot of times it was all shot in the studio and sometimes or sorry, not sometimes, most of the time he was adding some kind of photographic illustration on top of the original image. So putting people in a wheat field or putting someone who's actually on a motorcycle, but the motorcycle is spinning and fire shooting out of it, or, um, you know, adding some kind of surreal aspect to the original photograph, which was shot in the studio. If it appeared on a time cover, it would say photo illustration. Right. It wouldn't right. say photo by, it would say photo illustration. Got it. Right. The ESPN, it was always something crazy with like some athlete or either the real athlete or superimpose their head on a body, and, you know, <laughs> things like that. Um, but they were always really fun and kind of out of this world. Okay. But that was also editorial. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot more in editorial than I thought. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, you just pick up any magazine and yeah. that is editorial. And what's in the newspaper is journalism. And sometimes they cross over, especially if it's like, you know, like a news reporting publication. Sure. So it just depends on the publication. And then you've got the world of fine art, which can be in a magazine because I've had my work in a magazine. Yeah. 
but most fine art photographers are producing work to be exhibited in a gallery, maybe produced in a book, you know, sold or sold to a client. Um, They Mm. do or collected by a museum. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that the worlds don't commingle and cross pollinate. They do all the mm-hmm. time. Just like mm-hmm. in the art world, everything is every, you know, yes, you may be a photographer, but yes, you do performance and video, or maybe you were a sculptor, but now you do fiber. I mean, mm. everyone's sort of like cross pollinating. And um, that's just, you know, I think that's the way it is in any career, any medium or yeah. any um, anything that you might be doing out there. But, you know, I think you start off in one department or one venue and you sort of morph into others. And so, you know, yeah. I started in journalism, then I went to publications and editorial working sure. with these photographers. And then I went to fine art and then they've all kind of collapsed and folded into one another. <laughs> Fair. I don't really show in, in newspapers anymore, but right. <laughs> so, for obvious reasons, Yeah. unless it's a review. Right. Right. <laughs> So I, I love that that we just sort of broke everything down and, and we brought at least up to speed a, a little bit in terms of where you yeah. are, that everything is this, it sounds like a melange, right, of, <laughs> of the work that you're doing that's part self-expression, part documenting, mm-hmm. part data science and, you know, breaking apart uh, what are, you know, the component parts of some of the materials and ingredients that you have utilized within the work that you've done, telling stories. So there's a lot more that that comes to light. Do you want to talk about either the most recent project you've done or pluck out one of the other projects to use it as an illustrative point? So you mentioned like data science and data visualization. And, you know, for a long time, you know, looking back at the projects that I've done, I'm very aware of my journalism training and how Mm. it's informed work. And Mm. as a photographer, even when I left journalism, I was still collecting information. I was Mm. visually, I was, you know, comparing and contrasting things in hospitals or um, places and maybe not even intentionally doing it. It was just subconsciously happening. Mm -hmm. And so when I, made an effort to collect data and Mm -hmm. specifically working with Memorial Hermann here in Houston, the Life Flight Project, which is their red helicopter system, which is the first medical helivac in Texas. Mm. It was the first one in Texas and it's the busiest helipad in the country. Wow. And uh, Memorial Hermann has five bases and 19 choppers. Wow. Yeah. They're not all in operation at the same time, but that's how many they have in the fleet. And, right. um, and that's just for the city of Houston. That's just for the city of Houston. Wow. So, I mean, traffic is so, I mean, like any city, like LA, New York, whatever, Chicago, yeah. traffic is bad. And I feel very fortunate that, you know, should I need one, they exist. Yeah. And living in San Antonio, which I lived in prior to coming back to Houston, I lived in between the life flight it's not called life flight there. It's called like air life from downtown San Antonio to the med center. I lived in the track or the path of it. I also lived near a military base. So Mm. I could hear the military planes and the medical helicopters at the same time in the air, which was very interesting to me. And when I moved to Houston, I realized how many more helicopters they had. And I was like, what is going on? Who are these Mm. helicopters? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What's the story? And it was red Duke who started um, life flight here in Houston 
and um, you can look up him, but there's, you know, uh, they did a lifetime special trauma in the ER um, at Memorial Harmon with Life Flight. And there's been books and shows and all kinds of things about Red Duke. Yeah. But I was very interested in learning not only more about the helicopters and the history, but also tracking their movements. And okay. I was able, after a year of persistent phone calls and emails and visits, to get flight data for one month. I had wanted flight data for a year, but I got it for a month and was okay. able to, with the support of the Houston Arts Alliance, received a large financial grant to create a project with this flight log. And I created these kinetic kites that loosely reference helicopters and have the flight paths from the point of origin, literally where the helicopter took off, which base, where they picked up the patient and where they dropped off the patient. And then the next iteration of that project, I created other kinetic sculptures which moved and either blinked LED lights or um, um, had pressurized pumps. And this was, I was making this before COVID, but it came out right during COVID. mm, They looked like ventilators. Um, Making work based on patient vitals collected on board Life Flight. So not only did I have these patterns, but I also had patient vitals, which were heart rate, breath rate, and pulse. And so Mm. I was making sculptures and images and textiles and kinetic sculpture all based on data. So I was given, you know, a month of flight logs and made a series of works. And then I was given 11 patients worth of data and made 11 works based on those um, people. Hmm. And originally there was no photography in this project whatsoever. I stripped all color out of the project. All my projects prior to this had been very photography or video based, had Mm -hmm. been very saturated in color, reds, Mm -hmm. purples, pinks, things like that. Um, and much more visceral. And I knew that I wanted to challenge myself to make a shift in my career and in the work, the way that I was working and what the work looked like. And so I had stripped also photography out. Um, For the first time I exhibited this work and I remember at the opening, people were like, is this you? There's no photography. And I was like, yeah, isn't it great? (laughs) There's no photography. (laughs) But I also missed the photography but I had sure. to figure out how do I talk about something that's so visceral and not just photograph a red helicopter or not right. photograph a patient. What does that look like? Because as a documentary photographer or journalistic photographer, that's what you would do. Sure. But how do I not do that right. and still tell a story and still honor the people that are in flight, both the pilot and nurse and tech and also the patient in their care? How do I tell this sure. really profound story documenting it? And so I finally figured out a way, which was I did these self-portraits with textiles that were made based on patient data, and I wore them. Mm. And so Mm. I incorporated the patient experience, but I was the body. Got it. And this is your your piece called... Point of origin. You said the the name. Yeah, the, the whole yeah, the entire project is called Point of Origin, and those specific yeah. self portraits are recorded breath and recorded mm-hmm. beats. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I, when I went into it on your website, and and you've written up a, a great blurb, but just having you walk through it and detail that piece of you know, when people showed up and they were looking at the exhibit and their, their question to you was, well, where's the photographer? Is this you? Is, am I in the right place? And you're like, well, yeah, it, it is me. Isn't it great? I didn't use photography. Um, <laughs> how did that, how did that feel? Did that feel hard for you to not 
flex that muscle that you had? Yeah, it was extremely challenging. I mean, I'd been making images for, I don't know what it was at that point, 15 years, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> long time. And, and I'd been making projects within a medical vein for many years and it had sure. been primarily photography based. So what happens when you strip all that away and yeah. can you still be successful as an artist? So it was almost, you know, like I said before, a challenge or a test to myself. Yeah. Can I be an artist that doesn't use photography? Right. Part of me just needed a break. I <laughs> had been sh doing two dimensional work for so long. It felt repetitive to me. And I, I didn't see. want to be repetitive anymore or feel yeah. repetitive or boring. Um, and so for me, I really needed to take a break from that and work in other mediums and yeah. figure out how do I take an idea, distill it down and communicate it to an audience that may have no idea what they're looking at, right. um, ha have no, no reference point or understanding of life flight. Um, you know, or have any interest in it. And, you know, for me, I was trying to combine that military upbringing, um, because these medical helicopters come from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And actually, most of the life flight pilots are former military. So there's mm. that interesting side note. Mm. Um, and they go under really rigorous training to be a life flight yeah. pilot. Yeah. But then also my interest in the, in the medical. So this project, Point of Origin, combined those two interests for me um, into one, which was really exciting. And then on top of it, yeah, how do I, how do, I do this project without photography? And yeah. it exhibited for the first time in 2019 in Houston. Yeah. And then the second time it opened in March of 2020, right before, literally the week the pandemic shut down Texas, yeah. which was awesome. And, um, but two weeks before it opened, I got sick and was in bed from, you know, the stress of preparing this 20 piece solo show, the mm. largest solo show I'd ever had. And I had these, those textiles that I did the self portraits with. I, it's one textile. Um, I had it sitting next to my bed and I was like, huh, I wonder what happens if I wear this thing? What else can mm. I do? I'm in bed. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and I yeah. set up the camera and there were the images and right. that they were added they were printed and framed and delivered to the gallery the day it opened. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, I, I wasn't going to add photography just because I could, right? Wow. It had to be the right, it had to be the right piece. And it did not come until two weeks before the opening. Yeah. But it, it, it's there now. So, and I'm really happy. That's interesting that you found it also serendipitously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You weren't planning I, to find it, and yet it, mm -hmm. it kind of found you. Yeah, I was laying there in bed, and it was the, well, I was trying to create some kind of sculpture with this textile that we'd made based on a patient yeah. pattern, uh, yeah. this, these vitals. And we had fed it through this program called Touch Designer, and it made this like circular pattern. You could feed in the numbers and play with it, it would spit out different patterns. And I was like, oh, I really mm -hmm. like this radial pattern. I want to make that into a sculpture. I found mm -hmm. someone to help me do this. And we bleached this stainless steel textile. Mm -hmm. So it bleached out the cotton or um, linen and it left this really delicate stainless steel structure. Mm -hmm. So what you're looking at is technically a textile that's been half bleached. And so you see the black ring or the black, you yeah. know, edging, and then the rest is where it's been bleached. And yeah, I, I was trying to find some kind of structure to hold it properly. Yeah. Couldn't figure out what, 
what I wanted and kept playing with it. And the person who helped me make it, I was like, just leave it with me and I'll try and figure it out. So I put it next to my bed so that I could look at it every day. And then I got sick and then, you know, had my camera in my room and was like, okay. And then literally the background of those images, I have a, an organic mattress and it had two parts. Mm. And so I like, I didn't have a white backdrop. So I lifted up one part of the mattress and I'm like literally sandwiched in between the mattress with this huge window in my room and a camera and this thing on my face and my chest. And there you go. Wow. I know people are like, is this in a studio? And I'm like, no, it's in my bedroom. (laughs) Available light. This is what you can do because I was trained as a photojournalist. I can shoot in available light. (laughs) That's right. So take us to your most recent work. Your show opened and as your point of origin, you you talk through that. It sounds like this show was also very complicated. Can you give us a summary of what the show is about? It started off as a response to somebody else's work. Um, This really great painter, Deborah Brown, uh, based in New York City. And it Mm -hmm. evolved into an exploration into um, my Cuban heritage. So Mm. I was asked to create a performance in response to Deborah's work, but then I was Mm -hmm. asked to create a solo show in addition to the performance okay. on a month and a half timeline, which anyone listening, easy, <laughs> sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah, not yeah. just one but two, yes. Yeah. And I like challenges, and uh, I like pushing myself, um, and so yeah. I accepted. And um, you know, could I have made something that was aesthetically beautiful in a month and a half? Of course, sure, right, um, but. I wanted to make something that was meaningful to me and something Mm. that comes from me, um, my life and my story. And so I was able to harness or really quickly figure out that I wanted to do something about my grandmother, my abuela who came from Cuba and her name was Jorge Lina. And my daughter is named after her. Her name is Georgina. So that's the English version. And I had in graduate school, shortly after her death, done a self-portrait outside Mm. her grave where I was looking at her grave. And Mm. um, my middle name is Antonia. So it's Jorge Lina. My mom is Babara Ramona. And I'm Sada Antonia. And my daughter is Georgina. And so I named that portrait Finding Antonia, um, trying Mm -hmm. to find, you know, this this link to my Cuban heritage standing outside mm-hmm. my grandmother's grave. And I knew n- most people have never seen this image. And um, I was 25 or 26 at the time. And uh, oh. I, when I had this opportunity from the gallery, I, I knew that I wanted to revisit her grave and I wanted to do a performance. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't know how, but I guess I tapped into the right thing at the right time and asked the universe and the universe (laughs) responded and said, you need to go wash your grandmother's grave. Like Mm. it really said, it didn't say that to me, but that's what I felt. Like I felt this impulse and it was Easter weekend. And yes, Mm. I was raised Catholic and all, (laughs) it's all the symbolism is there. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm Buddhist or practicing becoming Buddhist now. But anyway, that's a side note. And so yeah, on Easter weekend, I go down to Corpus. Okay, more Catholic symbolism there. I go down to Corpus, I drive in in the morning, I get in at about 11. I unpack the car, I set up a camera, 
Mm-hmm. And I and take a little bucket of water and some white cloth napkins, and I yeah. proceed to wash my grandmother's grave okay. to honor her and yeah. to say thank you and to show care and reflect on her life. So the entire yeah. time I'm washing not only the wall, the, uh, the granite wall that she's in, but also the cement in front of her grave, um, okay. sort of like preparing the site in a way. And, you know, when I was looking or asked to respond to this other artist's work, I was thinking a lot about performance art and performance artists and working with the land and working with the body. Sure. And, you know, what was it in my life that I could tap into and I was specifically looking at Anna Mendieta and the performances that she did. And was there something I wanted to do in the dirt? And I think okay. that's kind of what led me to think about the dirt. And even though my grandmother's not buried in the ground, she's in a wall, it still, I see. It still led me to her grave and yeah. um, the idea of the washing and, um, and it being invisible labor and invisible care that I, you know, you only know I did it because I recorded it. Otherwise, I would just be telling you about it. Sure. You know, and I hadn't been to her grave in years and Mm. I I don't go to Corpus often. My father still lives there, but I don't visit it. I don't visit the grave often. And so it was very special for me to go back and, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there washing. I, you know, I basically did it in one take. It was six minutes long and my knees really hurt when I got done. And I, you know, pulled up my dress that I had on and I had marks all over my legs and I was like, huh. Mm that'll make a good picture. <laughs> and because of, you know, the I photo tell, journalist, yeah. yeah, the photo journalist documenting the action who also does self portraiture. And I was like, okay, I got this. <laughs> you know, I'm in the grave, you know, in the cemetery, hoping that like no one stops me. I'm like, okay, I've done my performance. I watched it really quickly. I was like, okay, that's good. Moving on. Yeah. yeah. And, um, so then I documented my legs Okay. and then I was like, huh, I wonder what happens if I stand in this bucket. And then I did another picture and the wind picked up and it like blew my dress like a sail. And then I ended up calling that picture finding Antonia. So that's the one that you'll see. Um, You won't see the red dress version from when I was 26. You'll see the white dress version from when I'm 43. (laughs) And, um, but I was thinking about, yes, the washing and, you know, was this to honor her, but then this portrait of my legs and the portrait of me standing in the bucket, I was really contemplating or trying to embody what it must've been like for her to come from Cuba to America. And she actually first came over on a plane with my mother and then was abandoned by my grandfather in Chicago. Um, And so my grandmother as a single mother has to travel you know, ends up working in Chicago for a while, saves enough money, goes back to Key West, eventually goes Mm. back to Cuba, then comes Mm. back to the United States, back to Key West and back and forth. And then in the eighties, she also went to Cuba and rescued family members during the Mariel boat lift. And Mm. so for me, this performance at the grave was not only, like I said, to honor her and to reflect on her life, but also to, just take time to um, think about how hard that must have been to travel back and forth in, you know, in the fifties and early sixties as a single woman with a child and how scary that must have been and how challenging that must have been, but also how brave that she was. Yeah. And then to go back to this country you left to rescue your family. Yeah. You know, she didn't have to do that. She chose to do that. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot there. 
yeah, so most of the work is coming from this, you know, performance of the grave, which I videotaped or shot myself, and then it did these two images of myself. And then I also photograph the napkins or towels in mm. the water um, mm. after, um, after I washed because the water got dirty. And yeah. I also created these ceramic vessel plate bowl things that are very simple in, in design. I've never made anything in clay, but I had a friend help me and rolled out the mm. clay in very uneven patterns. <laughs> um, that's okay. And I impressed into them the napkins. Mm. So the folding and the texture is embedded into these napkins, into these vessels. And uh, those were fired. My friend fired them for me. So that exists. And then the live performance could have been a remake of the grave washing, but I wanted to do something different because, you know, that's who I am. Why not just add one more challenge right. to myself on a very, you know, escalated timeline? So the grave piece, so you split it up into two sections, right? Mm -hmm. One's called water and one's called rope. Yes. So el recuerdo, which means the memory. Okay. The grave is the water. Um, the self-portrait, one is called finding Antonia and one is called bearing. And then the uh, ceramic pieces are called inherited memories. Okay. Uh, because they're, you know, embedded with these textures. And the El Recuerdo rope is the live performance that I did. And originally it was also going to have some kind of water element to it. Okay. Um, I was going to have water poured on me or dirt poured on me. I knew I wanted to be suspended from the ceiling because the gallery had this amazing, it's this old building that's been redone, but it had this okay. amazing I-beam in it. Yeah. And I thought, oh, how wonderful is that? And I've never suspended in an art gallery space before. And I was thinking had about... Had you suspended before at all? Yeah, I had suspended before, okay. but only very limited and, you okay. know, kind of in a smaller setting. And uh, definitely not for like a live performance or an art piece or anything like that. And so I had some knowledge, but nothing to where I have now. And again, that was all fast tracked as well. Sure. <laughs> there's so much, I want to do the piece again, but I, there's a huge learning curve. And now I need to know even more because I want to do it again. And I want to do it even uh, longer and have more knowledge going into it. And I'll get okay. into that in a second. Yep. Thinking about, you know, the these paintings and these women traveling in canoes and these solo travelers, that also is what kind of led me to go down this path with my grandmother, thinking about her being this solo traveler. But, uh, you know, I was thinking about having some kind of water element to reference the lake or waterway that they were on or the boat. And that just became very uh, challenging logistically. Yeah. in a short period of time and sure. trying to bring it into the gallery and not being able to bring it into the gallery till a few days before the opening. And, um, so I ended up taking out the water, which freed me up to bring in more rope and mm. the rope, instead of me just suspending from one point, I had extra rope, which I ended up moving with my body. So okay. as I swing in space, I was able to move the rope with me, mm. pulling and tugging on it. And I was able to spin and knot the rope or twist the rope. Um, and I could also come up out of um, suspension and untangle rope. And so it was this sort of this dance with uh, the rope. And I wanted to be the vessel. And I also wanted to be the sailor or the traveler at the same time. So I, I was wanting to embody both perspectives. 
And then during the performance, I basically repeated very um, simple gestures over and over again. So swinging from one side to the other, rotating and twisting, dragging my feet, extending, you know, my arms or my legs as if I was floating or dancing in midair. And I would kind of rotate over as much as I could. But the rope, I wanted to serve both as a support and restriction. So, you know, my movements were restricted because mm-hmm. of where the rope was on my body. I was, I didn't have like full rotation. I couldn't move mm-hmm. completely because of my body, you know, my body weight and, and how the harnesses were attached to me and supporting me. Sure. But in that piece, I was thinking about, yes, the boat, the vessel, my grandmother traveling from Cuba to America and what that must have been like on each journey, because not every journey would have been the same. And thinking about ties to the past, ties to the present, ties to the mm-hmm. future, and then, mm-hmm. you know, the meaning of the rope, you know, is the rope freedom? Yeah. Or is it, you know, tying me, you know, to, um, you know, a history that I no longer want to be part of? Yeah. Um, or my, you know, that my grandmother wanted to be part of. And it was interesting that during the performance, I, I spoke to a few people afterwards and I had three rings. So I was suspended from the center ring and there was these two outer rings with rope hanging from them mm-hmm. that wasn't tied to anything. It was just looped through. So it could potentially just fall out. Mm-hmm. And I liked the fact that I was able to pull on these ropes as if I was on a ship um, mm-hmm. and moving them and adjusting them. But then when the ropes would get tangled because I was spinning and moving around for half an hour um, and I would get up and I would start to untangle the ropes, they or people gave me the feedback that they saw that as taking the Cuban and American history and sort of separating those identities, which I thought Mm. was kind of really interesting that, you know, Mm. people read other things into it based on my gestures with the rope. And um, I've never worked with rope before in my entire life. So this, I'm really excited to kind of keep exploring like, okay, this was the first time I did this performance. I did it in the space on Friday and then then it was Mm -hmm. live on Saturday, which Mm -hmm. is crazy as well. (laughs) I would have liked to have been practicing for an entire week in the space. So, you know, when it's at MoMA, I'll be practicing for a week, maybe two, (laughs) maybe two weeks um, with some breaks in between. Um, but yeah, I want to add more elements. I want to add in probably even longer. Um, I want to record. How long was it? At, as it was you 30 minutes. It? it was actually 30 minutes. Okay. But, so maybe it's not that it's longer, but just maybe there's more variation. Maybe there's more of a, there was a loose sequence, but it was more mm-hmm. just improv of specific motions or gestures. So sure. maybe there's more of a sequence. I don't know. But something I do want to do is definitely change sort of the cadence or the rhythm of the piece. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. it goes up and down more. Yeah. Uh, and then I want to record someone humming or singing mm-hmm. Cuban songs or mm-hmm. Cuban hymns. Mm-hmm. And then that way I can also know what time mark I'm at in the performance. Sure. Sure. So these are all things that, you know, almost choreography. Yeah. yeah. So like a loose choreography, but not choreography yeah. because it's not a dance and it's right. not theater. It is like right. performance. So it can be messed up right. and it's not supposed to be perfect. And yeah. You know, something that came about was it didn't Friday's performance or rehearsal went spectacular and it was recorded and it was great. I was really happy with it. And Saturday, 
we shifted a few things and it wasn't the same for me. And not that anybody uh, else knew this, but right. I knew it. And I, I realized how important it is for me to um, have a very specific feeling during the performance yeah. for me as the artist yeah. um, so that I can express or share with the audience an authentic emotion. And so yeah. there were certain things that were not happening for me on Saturday during the live piece and I wasn't going to fake it. So, um, right. you know, I was frustrated and the audience saw that I was frustrated. They didn't see mm. the other emotions that I wanted them to see, like exhaustion and pain. Mm. Um, I was tied a little bit differently. And so I wasn't mm. quite so restricted. I wasn't in, so uncomfortable as I was on Friday. Mm. And in this, it's not that it, it didn't go well. It just went differently. Yeah. But how important it is for me in recent performances that I've done, such as 60 Pounds of Pressure and Will You Hug Me Forever, how important mm. it is that I, as the performer, has a very visceral response to the performance so that you, yeah. as the audience, see what's happening to me. You see me crying, you see me struggling, you see me sweating, sure. you sure. see me exhausted. Those are all real emotions. That's where I am in real time. And it's not yeah. anything faked or acted or anything like that. And so I don't know when I'll get to do this piece again, but I'm looking forward to developing it more and just seeing where it goes from here because, you know, it, it was created like three weeks ago. <laughs> so, and then I had to perform it. Right. Created, uh, manifested, and then, and uh, then go. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, I used to be a dancer and I want to take more dance classes and I had started Pilates mm -hmm. to get more in shape and stretched out. And, mm -hmm. you know, I relied very heavily on these rigors, these Shibari rigors that I know. And now I know that I need to learn how to tie some yeah. on my own yeah. because in the performance I was too low to the ground Okay, and I kept hitting my feet. And I had I known how to tie myself or adjust the, the, the tie, yeah. I could have fixed it on yeah. myself, which I also think is kind of interesting because like on a ship or on a boat, you're constantly like pivoting and navigating what's happening. Yeah. You're adjusting to the situation or the environment or the weather yeah. or, you know, whatever, you know, is happening. And I kind of like the idea that, Oh, I could have stopped and fixed it or, yeah. or in future performances, I could adjust it to be more intense or less intense, or I can, you know, switch things up if I have that knowledge. And so that's something else mm -hmm. that I need to look into is getting classes so that I can, you know, do that in the future is, is adjust the ropes myself. Yeah. And then the notion of, of doing any sort of suspension work, and this is not work that I've ever done. I know people who have, but that's also not something to be taken lightly as well, right? That takes right. a certain amount of familiarity and training and, mm -hmm. you know, how to balance your body because when you're, it's, it's one thing to be comfortable in your body, you know, whether it's through, like you said, I'm um, doing Pilates or dance classes or yoga or other balancing work, but then it's another thing altogether to perform and, and be suspended from the ceiling via mm -hmm. rope. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I'll ever be at the level to do the ties from the ceiling. Yeah. I have a great friend who was doing that for me and she's trained taking yeah. classes and now is an instructor. So this is her, her expertise, Got it. but she did teach me enough to be able to, you know, make sure I clamped in right. Got it. So if you're a climber, similar things like carabiners and making sure the yeah. carabiners were this way versus that way right. and things like that. But 
I, there are people who self suspend or self tie. And mm-hmm. I don't know that I'll be at that level. I mean, may, maybe who knows, maybe my interest will go that far and extend sure. beyond what I need to know. Yeah. But yes, it's, it's an entire, it's a, it's a process. Um, you have to be very careful. The original on Friday, when we first set it up, I had wanted it to just be jute rope everywhere mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. the I-beam, including mm-hmm. over the I-beam. Right. And we were concerned that the I-beam may be sharp and mm. could snap the rope. And so I started to swing and I could hear it creaking and I stopped. And then yep. they went up on a ladder and they're like, it's starting to fray the rope. And so we had to put in a climbing rope, a climbing um, sling over yep. the I-beam and then attach the swivel. There was a swivel to a carabiner to rope and things like that. So it didn't have the aesthetic look I wanted, but it, sure. was, sa- it was safe. It was more safe. Yeah. Yeah, I would have liked it just to have been rope, but I could hear it like creaking. It made a really nice sound, but I was like, I'm going to land on the floor soon. <laughs> would not have lasted for 30 minutes. Yeah, no, definitely wouldn't have lasted for 30 right. minutes. Even though it was only like a foot off the ground or two feet off the ground, I still didn't want to smash my head on a concrete floor. Totally. So, so two things I want to pull out of just the two works that we've really dived into, and you've mentioned some of your other ones and they're all available on your website, but this idea of in your work, you're very collaborative in mm-hmm. the way that you approach it, right? You talked about working with someone who uh, has worked with ceramics, someone who's worked with rope, um, someone who can 3D print something for you. So it's not as though you're doing all of this work yourself, even if a lot of the concepting and the inspiration comes from you. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of collaboration. But then there's also a lot of, I would say, cross-functional work that you're doing as well because you're not functioning anymore strictly as a photographer right that's not even though there are parts of your work that um, still come through the lens of a camera you're you're delving into all of, of these other areas as well so I wonder in thinking about your work is this a direction that you're going to continue moving in I would say since 2012, when I had my first child, I have started to collaborate more and more with artists um, because my training is in photography only, both undergraduate and graduate. It's not to say that I can't learn things, but in my wheelhouse is smaller than I'd like. (laughs) My Mm, eyes are are wider (laughs) than what I can do. (laughs) And, And also opportunities present themselves faster than I can learn the technology. For example, the installation I did at the Children's Museum last year, which was this huge 18-foot LED interactive light installation. Okay. That was two months. That's all I was given. Two months to create it, prototype it, install it, test it, and then it was was go time. So I'm not going to learn that programming in a year. (laughs) Right. Maybe two years, maybe three years. Who's to say? You know, so I had to hire an expert who that is, you know, what they do day in and day out. So, you know, whether it's someone firing ceramics for me, Mm -hmm. like I said, I did roll out the clay and you you can tell because it's not (laughs) properly shaped, but that's, you know, like I said, that's okay. Right. You know, or working with a programmer or working with a textile artist to help me weave material because I don't own a loom. I've never worked on a loom. (laughs) Again, not an easy thing to learn overnight, right? 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 So I'm fortunate that I keep having these opportunities to make work, but if I want to make the work, I have to find people to help me. And there are artists who, and I think this applies to lots of disciplines or professions is 
there are people that are purists and they only, if, if they can't make the work themselves, it, it won't exist. And they'll figure right. out something else that they can do that is in their right. wheelhouse right. versus I want to make the work that best suits the idea. Yeah. Whatever the material is, whatever the medium is. I don't foresee myself going into painting unless I'm mm. using my body in some way. Mm. You know, I'm interested in a lot of materials and mediums. And if that's what's best suits the idea, then I'm going to find somebody to help me. Got it. And so, yes, in some ways, it's almost like a photo editor or an art director. It's like, okay, I want it to look like this and I want it to be this material. Can you help me make it? Yeah. Yeah. So I see myself continuing in that way just because of the nature of the types of projects that I'm doing and then continuing, yes, to use photography, but not necessarily always in a traditional sense. It's photography. Sometimes it's a photograph and sometimes it's a document of a performance. Um, And they both, I think have a place and I love them equally, but yeah, most recently the pieces that I've been doing have been performances that have been documented through photography. And yeah. um, this during the pandemic, I, I read this really great journal call, by Kathy O'Dell called Contract with the Skin. Mm. And um, it's beautiful. And it talks about performance artists from the 70s. And I think the subtitle is Masochism and um, Performance Art of the 1970s. <laughs> I found, I found myself in that book, I think. Mm. <laughs> and, um, I, re- I, you know, I was like, Oh, Oh, that's who I am. That's what I'm doing. Okay. I, I understand myself now, but it talks in there a lot about the photograph as the record of the here mm. and now, and the then and there and the audience's relationship to the performer and the audience's relationship to the image or the artifact of a performance and how certain performances only exist now as a photograph, sure. um, not even a video. Some, some exist as both, yeah. um, depending on if the artist is gone or no longer performing or, you know, what, what have you. But I think that that's really interesting how photography is serving that purpose. It's like bridging the gap or is it giving you a completely different perspective of an event? Yeah. So, yeah, I'm interested in exploring where that goes as well. One other thing that I wanted to pull out of something that you'd said previously is the idea of as an artist, as a creative person in the world, you also wear the hat of sometimes being a grant writer. And so you're having to go out and look for funding. What are things that you can do in order to continue to make the work uh, at a high enough level that it satisfies the thing that you're trying to make, but then also is compelling for other people to come and and see and experience. And, and I think one of the things, Sarah, in, in our previous conversations is this idea of how much being an artist is also sometimes being an independent business owner in a way, mm-hmm. when you have to go and you have to research something, when you have to hire the programmer for the project that you mentioned, the reading brain, yeah. that's not something that you might be able to get someone to give you a break or something, but that's you're, you're paying someone for their work to do this for you. Same thing with you know some of the other people that you've talked about. Can you unpack that a little bit in terms of go behind the scenes for the audience and talk a little bit about that administrator hat that you wear for your own work? Sure. Um, I had mentioned earlier the point of origin project 
I received two grants from the Houston Arts Alliance. That's great. I think the first one was $10,000 and the second one was twenty five or $2,500 or $5,000 just for that project. Okay. So that required me not only, you know, researching the grant, writing the application, yeah. and then um, following up with not only the work, but also the grant report. Sure. So yes, you have to make the work, you have to document the work, and then you have to, you know, submit where all the expenses went, who mm-hmm. you paid, how you paid, mm-hmm. things like that. So, you know, there definitely is, you know, a beginning, middle and end to that process. And a lot of the work I make now is grant funded. Mm-hmm. I can make some projects on my own without funding. For example, like the 60 pounds of pressure, um, that video and those images, as well as Will You Hug Me Forever, I shot those at home with what mm-hmm. I had during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. No, you know, no one was leaving. I used lights and backdrop material with what I had. I had just enough white backdrop material <laughs> to do those portraits <laughs> again in my room. Um, <laughs> and the the white the same white paper I laid on for the bricks is the same white paper I used <laughs> because I wasn't going to the photo store to get new white paper. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of times. Like I just received um, funding for a new project called Labor Pains, mm-hmm. again, through the Houston Arts Alliance. And I have not started on that project yet, but that is to explore um, homeschooling during the pandemic. And so that project will mm. be performance, photography, installation, <laughs> sculpture, sound mm-hmm. um, that I'll be creating over the next year. There'll also be some community um, components, including interviews with other mothers as well as a um, photographic archive collected from the community. And, but you know, that again is funded and I was waiting for the money before I started the project. And then like the reading brain that you mentioned earlier, which was very expensive, I was lucky enough to be awarded an artist in residency at the Duseum last year in 2020. Mm. And they provided funding to make the piece. Got it. That is the only way that that got done. Otherwise, there would have been no way to make it. And I mean, I do do some stuff on my own. Like, for example, I had an exhibition at the Blaffer Museum this year um, with some of the projects I mentioned earlier. I still had to produce it, get it printed, get it framed, things like that. That costs several thousand dollars. (laughs) You know, and then the show that I just opened a week and a half ago, I still had to produce it and pay for it, right? There was no no funding for that. So that, you know, that show... I tried to make as cheaply as possible. So I did a lot. And, and if I can barter with somebody, I will barter. Like I bartered Pilates sure. classes. I bartered nice. the firing of my clay pieces. I printed some uh, of the, pe- some, one of the photographs at school. I shot the stuff myself, you know, like if I can do it. Right. Um, and then my friends who did the tying for me, I bartered with them Yeah. because I needed to make it on a budget because there wasn't time to get funding. Yeah. It's almost like um, to put it in another terminology it's almost like art as minimum viable product Mm -hmm. in a way because you're just trying to get this like stood up and put out into the world in a way where people can react to it right and then then there will be iteration down the line like you said and i mean yes so grants residencies that pay and then selling the work so yeah I just recently got representation through Nancy Littlejohn Fine Art, which is really right. exciting. And that's where the exhibition is on view. So I'm, I'm hoping that through with her support and the gallery behind me that I will start moving some of my pieces 
get them out of my closet. And, um, but you know, what that means is not, that's not only livelihood for me, but that means I get to make more work, which is really exciting. So, um, you know, you can support an artist, support an artist, you know, I'm always happy to trade. I'm happy to barter and I'm really grateful to sell. Nice. So Sarah, we've talked about a lot of stuff and we're also over time and I know it's after 1030 for you. Yeah. yeah. So is there something you want to talk about that we haven't gotten into yet? What did I say last time? <laughs> I don't remember. Uh, you know, honestly, I it don't. Was, it wasn't profound, obviously. Well, I think we had an uh, sort of an offhanded uh, conversation about how just art oh, is hard. Oh, yeah. I think I talked about and art so, is hard. Yeah. 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 <laughs> art is hard. And I think, <laughs> there you go. Done. The end. Don't become an artist. <laughs> That's actually a good, is, is that something oh that God. I find as a parent now, I have all sorts of mixed oh aspirations God. for my yeah. daughter. What if one of your kids comes to you one day and says, you know, I want to be an artist or I want to be like, what is your response to them? Well, my daughter, I mean, she says she wants to be a lot of things, but you know, at one point she said, I want to be a photographer. That's great. Yeah. You can be lucrative. Yeah. I just chose the not necessarily the most lucrative path. I was on a lucrative path and then I changed. Right. I would say if they wanted to be an artist, not that I wouldn't encourage it, but I would make sure that they've got a plan B. Yeah. In case the art track either isn't successful for them and where they want to go, not yeah. necessarily if they don't make money, just if it isn't successful for them, sure. that they've got a that they've got a backup option, um, or that yeah. they choose a career which allows them time and space and financing to be an artist that they also find equally that they're equally passionate about, whatever that might be. They could be, you know, an educator and still be an artist. Sure. There's lots of things that you could do and still be an artist. I have friends here in Houston who are, you know, work in a lawyer's office or they, you know, mm. they work someplace part-time as a curator, you know, whatever they do. And they're still an artist on the side. I'm currently only an artist. Um, and that's more having to do with the pandemic and that most of the jobs that I applied for evaporated. And right. I'm still, you know, I was teaching and that's, you know, ended, um, the semester's ended and I'm not sure if I'll be getting any other classes. So right now my full-time job is as an artist and I might be going back right. to some commercial photography, um, to fill in the gaps, but you know, I think it's wise, no matter what you want to do, whether it's be an artist or something else that you've got a plan A and a plan B or two or two options sure. that can support one another, you know, whatever those are. Um, some months this might be you know one thing might be really great and then some months or years you know the other position or other um career might be more fulfilling or more fruitful sure so um yeah i I mean i'm i think both of my children are very artistically inclined i'd like ideally i'd like to see them funnel that through something else not just pure art because being an artist is so grueling it is absolutely grueling if anyone tells you otherwise they're they're just blowing smoke, <laughs> you know, like I was talking to my mom today. I got three rejections this week, huge rejections that I'm pretty devastated, yeah. pretty devastated about I'm sorry. both residencies that had money and grants and things like that. And you have to just, okay, I'll just keep, keep going and apply for another round and yeah. apply for another round. And, yeah. you know, like my job is to look for stuff and apply for things and get rejected. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, day in and day out right. because I don't get rejected from everything, right? It's just, a, it's a numbers right. game and the right team or committee or jurors or whatever it is, right? You have to fit in, they, you have to be yeah. what they're looking for. You have to fit in with the other artists. You know, yeah. there's so many factors that these things go into and yeah. you can't take it personally. I mean, you could always do better. I know yeah. that I could always do better and we could all do better. It's also sometimes timing, right? Yeah, sometimes timing. you can apply for the same same thing year over year and then one year landed and yeah. the next year. I'm going after Guggenheim. Okay, so I mentioned MoMA earlier. I'm also going after Guggenheim this year. Nice. Yeah, I've never applied, so yeah. here we go. Like I'm finally at that level that I can feel worthy of applying for a Guggenheim. Okay. And then, you know, I've applied for these other really big grants. And if I were to get them, that would be my salary for the next year or two. Right. And so, right. which would be but you know you've got to have enough self-confidence and enough sensitivity and be humble but also a thick enough skin to take it to take the rejection and to keep plugging and go okay this idea is really good or this idea is shit yeah (laughs) next or maybe it's a really a good idea but i just didn't write about it well or You know, there's so many factors. And, you know, one of the rejections I got gave me some really great feedback on that application and which I really, I really appreciated the feedback. And so next time I apply for that grant, I will, you know, change things up. And, and like I said, you just, you have to keep picking yourself up and putting yourself out there and it's not for everyone. Yeah. So Sarah, we're coming to the end of our time that we've scheduled to talk. And so I want to ask some of the wrap up questions that we ask everyone who comes on the show, is there something that you would tell yourself, like if you could go back in time and be the astronomer. (laughs) (laughs) So you could go back in time and and tell yourself some, some nugget of knowledge that this is the thing you should do. um, Or something you wish you would have learned earlier. What would that be? I've been fighting my entire life for people to stop putting me in a box. Mm. People try and put me in a box all the time. And this could apply to anyone Mm. and any aspect of their life. But there are people close to me in my life that still say to me, when you get a real job, (laughs) I'm like, this is my job. And that is so hard to hear. Oh, you should apply for this. You know, some, corporate not that I haven't I've had plenty of corporate jobs right but they don't feed my soul and sure I've done them because that's what needed to be done and I was you know trying to take care of my children and pay bills and get health insurance Mm -hmm. and etc etc but Mm -hmm. to be more I I guess I would go back and tell myself that when I if you want to call it intuition or knowing or I don't know an inner voice like to not be so afraid. Mm. And yes, people are going to have their opinions and they're going to want what they think is best for you, but to not be afraid to make the harder decision. Yeah. To follow your intuition yeah. or your voice. And if it means you don't you don't fit into a box, you don't fit into a box because quite frankly they're boring. And <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and who needs more of the same? Right. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple things just through our conversation that you've mentioned the book about 
performance artists. But what are two things that you're reading or watching or listening to right now that you're super into? Am I watching anything? <laughs> oh, no, I'm <laughs> Um, I'm really into meditation right now, so I don't do it every day Mm. like I should, but I'm really inspired by Dr. Joe Dispenza and his meditations. And I have friends that have met him and gone to his sessions and retreats. Mm. And so I'm really interested in what he's doing. And, um, Mm. a lot of the the podcasts, oh, I guess I'm listening. He's got a bunch of books. One is called... Becoming Supernatural, and one is called okay. Breaking the Habit of Being Yourself. And you can find them free online, which I really love. Um, you can pay for, you know, you can join him, become a member, download meditations that he does. He's got free meditations online and then these audiobooks, which I actually listen to in the bath. So that's like my, mm. my special, you know, like I'll take a hot bath and then I'll, you know, let them roll. Because it's like, they're like nice. 10 hours. Uh, the audiobooks, 10, oh, 12 wow, hours. Okay. So, um, you know, it takes me wow. a while to get through them, but I enjoy listening to them. And I, I find that they've been very helpful and talking about, you know, letting go of past experiences and really trying to manifest, you know, a, a different life for yourself. And, you know, that's something that I'm mm. actively pursuing. It's like, okay, if I want that show at MoMA, how do I get that show at MoMA? <laughs> Yeah. I have to start visualizing it yeah. and other things in my life and um, being more financially stable as an artist and being more successful. And, you know, now I have gallery representation, which I didn't have two months ago. Right. <laughs> it, I can't say it's for everybody, but if you've got the time and you want something to listen to in the bath, you know, I highly recommend them. You're not going to be sorry you listen to them. So we'll link to them in the show notes. Mm hmm. So Sarah, where can people find out more about you? We're going to link to some stuff um, as we're promoting the show and then during the week that your show comes out. But where can people find out about you? I have my website, which is www.sarahsudoff.com. And that's S-A-R-A-H-S-U-D-H-O-F-F.com. And then also on Instagram. So, and it's just Sarah Sudoff. Okay. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Of course, thanks for having me back. (laughs) And thank you for listening to How This Works. Please follow or subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. This is the first season of our show. It would mean so much if you could just tell one other person about it and why they should listen. You can find How This Works online at howthisworks.show. It's three words, no dashes. Again, that's howthisworks.show. We're also active in the places where social media does its thing. I hope that you learned something from my conversation with Sarah today. Even for as many years as I've known her, for sure I do. And we'll talk again soon.
even though there are parts of your work that um, still come through the lens of a camera, you're you're delving into all of these other areas as well. What's the question? Just to talk about yep. that. Yeah, that's a <laughs> that's like, <"What's> the question. <laughs> so, so those are so pulling those. Yep. Yeah, you're right. There's no. I was no like, question. what's the question? Yep. So I, I wonder, <laughs> yeah, 